Bob, it's my lifeblood. You know, I can tell you what we should be paying for something. I can tell you what the deal says we should be paying, but AP tells us exactly what we did pay. And that drive, those data analytics drive my project agenda going into next year and what I need to attack. And also what I attacked last year, is it sticking? Is it, am I getting the benefits of it? Or did I, you know, again, negotiate for for price A and I'm paying 2X on A. So uh, the, the, the data that AP provides literally sets the roadmap for our success. Welcome to the Ultimate Supplier Management Podcast from Apex Analytics. This is an audio version of a recent webinar we had called AP Metrics That Matter in 2021. We had a great group on this webinar. It was Gerard Cardillo, Executive Director of Global Categories Procurement at Charles River Labs, Bob Cohen, Vice President of Research at Ardent Partners, and Danny Thompson, SVP of Market and Product Strategy here at Apex Analytics. They reviewed the data of the recent Ardent Partners report on AP, discussed early payment discounts, electronic invoicing, and some of the challenges that AP departments are facing today. As always, the slides are in the episode notes. If you want to download them, enjoy the show. A little about the demographics of the data that we're going to be looking at here. So this was a report or research study that we did, excuse me, during 2021, early on in the COVID days, kind of a, a couple months into it. And so we're captured not only the performance, what was going on previously, but also some of the intentions and changes that were affecting organizations in the midst of the COVID crisis. So we had a couple of hundred respondents here. They were came from a, a good cross-section of the populace out there. So well-represented from small, medium, and large organizations, a great representation across 25 different industry sectors that are there. And then also the job levels that we uh, reach was also you know quite varied, which is good because if we just asked, you know, one level, you know, AP managers or VPs of finance, one question, you know, we'd get skewed results one way or the other. It's a great blending across the board here. And so, you know, with that kind of, you know, I want to bring up the first slide. Before I do, you know, I was actually having a conversation this weekend with the director of accounts payable for a large billion dollar plus organization. And, you know, he was actually had received the ebook from us and he want, you know, he had some good feedback, you know, for me. And, you know, what he said was, you know, this book represents everything that everybody is doing collectively. But, you know, those of you listening are probably at different stages of automation and different stages of maturity when it comes to measuring metrics. There's some basic metrics that companies start out with. And then as you kind of master those and start monitoring those, you kind of move on to the intermediary ones and more advanced ones. So what we're showing here where we talk about what the average results are versus the best in class, they really can give you kind of a, a frame of reference to, to start your evaluation with. So if you haven't started, great. You're in the right place to start taking a look at you know, what you need to do. And if you have started, realize there's always room for improvement. And then that kind of brings me back to you know, my, my last thought here is you know, we often get asked, you know, why, do you measure, why do you measure metrics? Why are we even bother to do this? And, and it kind of brings me back to you know, a saying that I learned a long time ago, which is you know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. If you can't manage it, 
you can't improve it. And if you can't improve it, then you can't show what you're doing to the rest of the organization. So that's why we measure metrics. It's a great way to understand where we are, where we want to go, and what's possible. So with that, uh, let's kind of jump right in here. So all but 3% of the respondents in our survey said that COVID impacted their accounts payable, with over a quarter of the respondents saying the impact was significant or extraordinary. How businesses paid their suppliers is one of the areas that COVID changed. Gerard, you managed over a billion dollars in spend. Charles River is extremely you know, active uh, last year, as we saw on the previous slide. What's your perspective on supplier payments and how they might have been affected during uh, the last year? So I'm going to, you know, pause for a second on the supplier payments and just say in general, anybody who's gone through COVID and not applying that knowledge and those insights to all their strategies, their processes, their systems, et cetera, I think has their have the head in the sand. That doesn't mean you necessarily have to change everything, but this is a groundbreaking event, a paradigm shifting event that no one ever planned for. Now, that said, is that, you know, from the supplier payment perspective, you know, we went into 2020, much like many of the rest of the folks listening today, looking looking to improve our free cash flow through improved payment terms. So, and we were pushing hard on that and we were being, we were very successful. Well, in COVID, we thought it uh, best to take a step back reassess that strategy. And we actually came out with a new new strategy in that now we're stratifying our supply base. And if you're a large supplier with a big spend from us, we're going to continue to push on payment terms. Flip side is if you're a small supplier, maybe small spend with us as well, it's not going to be part of the agenda. During COVID, we actually sought out suppliers that were struggling that we thought were important to our supply chain. And we actually paid in advance of payment terms so that we can get some money in the pipe and keep them afloat. So, yeah, it's, it's these are these are changing times for sure. Hey Danny, over to you. When you're talking to your customers, uh, what, what are they saying about how they're paying their suppliers? What kind of changes are they seeing? It, yeah, it kind of depends uh, based on the how COVID impacted the business. So, in cases like. Charles River, we, we're hearing where Charles River is a company who's, you know, very active and if anything, maybe ramping up business during the crisis to, to help address the crisis there. Uh, similarly, we've seen retailers, grocery stores, consumer packaged goods companies all behaving in a way that's very similar to what Gerard has described where they're trying to pay some suppliers faster because they want to make sure that the, the wheels are greased on their supply chain so they can meet demand. But the other types of companies that have been hit hard, so we're talking about airlines, hospitality, maybe in-person entertainment type companies, they were looking for ways to extend working capital and work with their suppliers and supply chains to just collectively extend working capital in a way that made sense to everyone. So if you look at this as a whole, what we really found was a lot of collaboration between buying organizations and selling organizations around what really made sense for both parties given the situation and we saw a lot less of one party or the other just really pushing an agenda on the other party 
So collaboration was king. Got it. And I think, you know, you think about, you know, when a crisis hits, what's the CFO's first reaction is to hold on to your cash. And I think Gerard mentioned that, you know, the first reaction was, okay, let's hold on to our cash a little bit longer. But then when you took a, a deeper dive into your actual supply base and realized that there's different levels, there's different categories of suppliers, as Gerard said, and they have to segment those and those that, you know, are more in a better position and those that need the cash more so. So I think, you know, what we saw here was the response was everyone wasn't holding on to cash. Actually, the, the change in the way businesses pay their suppliers, many of them actually look to speed up payments to maintain solvency, as Gerard said. And that's what our data showed as well when we kind of peeled back a little bit further on it. So kind of picking up, Danny, on what our survey showed in terms of early payment discount capture, Gerard said that discount capture increases when you apply the right kind of, of mixed strategies. You know, what did you see with your clients as far as discount capture uh, and taking advantage of what was available to them? Yeah, we've seen a lot, uh, learned a lot in the past few years working with clients. Of course, we have tools that help them monitor discount capture and accelerate discount capture as well as our uh, some predictive analytics that we create around which suppliers are most likely to want to take early payments in exchange for a discount and learn some really interesting things. First of all, the APR that, that you apply to a discount, it's not a one-size-fits-all world. Different supplier categories can accept different APRs. And so it's important to evaluate that. We've been using this cash discount likelihood score to predict which suppliers are willing to take discounts or not. And right now, we've got an incredibly high, over 90% predictive accuracy rate around which suppliers are uh, interested in taking discounts using this score. The uh, second is some good news that you don't have to have an automated payment in place in order to get a supplier to accept an early payment. In fact, we found that every one of our clients has an equal to or higher adoption rate of early payments from check recipients as ACH recipients. And that's because you're still getting the check to someone faster by paying early versus paying late or on time. Of course, a faster cycle time to get to approval increases your discount opportunity. We see that your discount opportunity drops 70% on invoices entered after the 14th day. Let's see, extending payment terms drives better discounts. We've also seen companies that offer, they, they end up giving away early payments. And in certain cases, you might want to do that, but uh, some companies just do it a lot more than you might expect. And then lastly, I would say you should open every possible channel for a supplier to take a discount. So as they're onboarding, offer them discount payment terms. Every time they have an invoice that's approved early, uh, before the due date, offer them an opportunity get, to get paid early. And you can do that through your online inquiry systems, but you can also push out emails and texts to suppliers to get early payments. And we found that if you uh, do that, you can you can more than double your adoption of dis early payment discounts. Good advice. And going back to what Gerard said, you need to categorize and segment your supply base and figure out which ones are more apt to offer discounts, take discounts, et cetera, because you want to maximize kind of the investment that you're making in AP and the time that you're spending. And 
It's also something that we see companies taking more advantage of early payment discounts, the more uh, automated they are, the more they apply technology to their issues. Because as you said, there's less likelihood of getting a early payment discount if it takes you 10 or 20 or 30 days to have an invoice received and approved. So the, the faster you can automate the, the approval cycle, receive that invoice, the more likely you are to be in a position to take those early payment discounts as well. So kind of moving right along here, the perception of AP that we got back has actually risen for the third year in a row. We're now clearly above 50% three years in a row, which we had never been before. So while the perception is rising and now it stands at about 60%, an increase of 5% over the previous year, there's still some challenges. Danny, what are some of the solutions to the challenges we see on the screen? Yeah, so one challenge is just getting the invoice in the door. And we've seen that companies who are accepting paper invoices, they don't even get the invoice in the door until 10 or or 12 days into the cycle. While if they have e-invoicing in place or even just emailed PDFs, they can get that invoice in the door in the first or second day after the invoice date, which is you know, automatically helps with cycle times. Now, once you've got the invoice, getting it through the approval cycles is really a matter of how much preparatory work did you do on the front end? Did you get a purchase order arranged for that invoice? So it's essentially a pre-approved payment. Has the goods received receipt been entered in a timely basis? But also e-invoicing is a is a big help here is the supplier sending you an invoice in a format that's easily digestible easily matched to the purchase order and easily approved without interacting without requiring human interaction so that whole e-invoicing piece whether it's a file feed from the supplier or the supplier is going on to a website and flipping a purchase order Whatever you can do to get that data in in an electronic format can accelerate invoice processing. Hey, Gerard, let's ask you from your procurement perspective, can better connections and collaboration between AP and procurement help address some of the challenges we see on the screen and and the many others that exist? Absolutely. Uh, I think AP has done an amazing job advancing their brand, right, raising their value to the organization. But you know, with the exception of the lack of respect slash status in the organization, the three biggest things uh, on the on the page can be improved through collaboration with procurement. So getting those upstream processes correct. You know, uh, here at CRL, you know, we've been digging into trying to, you know, reduce blocked invoices. And we found that only 5% are due to price. However, over 15% of our buyers' time are spent unblocking those invoices. It's you know a real drain on the on the organization where they can be using that time for higher value interactions. And you're often pulling suppliers into it, you're pulling stakeholders into it. So it's a bigger sap on the organization than what it appears to be. Got it. I'm gonna switch over to um, take the headset off. So hopefully you guys can hear me. Uh, let's continue here. Another big challenge is holding AP back is the time spent handling supplier inquiries. You know, why is this such a challenge? Because almost a quarter of AP time is spent handling inquiries from suppliers, from internal personnel, suppliers contact the business units wanting to know why they haven't been paid, why they got paid a certain amount. 
this is not efficient. You know, if we can figure out a way to either enable the suppliers to service themselves through some type of portal, or more ideally is to eliminate the problem altogether is really what we want to get to. And, you know, the challenges we talked about on the previous page, things taking too long, missing information, too much paper, all go into this challenge that we're talking about on the screen here right now. So suppliers and business units only contact AP when there's a problem. And so if we can mitigate those problems, find out where they're coming from, it's a huge win because we can gain back a quarter of the time that AP is spending if we can eliminate these problems. So we can take them from doing tactical, manual, labor-intensive processes and get to a more strategic value-adding use of time by AP staff. And you know, which one do we want to do? Do we want AP to be running around chasing down answers? Or do we want AP to try to find out how to provide better information that can add value to the organization, make suppliers happier, et cetera? So next, manual checks are still a top B2B payment challenge. But second is a, a topic that's pretty you know, hot and um, you know, high on the list of things being discussed these days. And that's kind of managing vendor payments and banking details. Danny, talk to me a little bit about how banking validations are a big issue and what can be done about them. Yeah, banking validations have been a real challenge for, for companies for many years now. The sort of tried and true method that companies use for many years kind of fell apart in 2020 due to COVID. And, and that was, you know, call a contact. If somebody's trying to to make a change to a bank a bank account, call your known contact at their office phone number and confirm that the bank account is being changed. But the problem is that with everyone moving to work from home, either those phone work phone numbers don't work anymore, or if if you're calling someone's cell phone, you don't know if that person still works for the supplier organization. And so that's one challenge. A second challenge is that the, the fraudsters out there have gotten really sophisticated uh, when it comes to changing bank accounts. They have been creative about just probing the AP help desk, calling a little bit here, a little bit there, gathering information along the way so that when they're ready to, to strike and get a bank account number changed to a fraudulent bank account, they have all the information they need to sound like the supplier. And so a really cool innovation that's come in the last 18 months, it's been really changing the whole bank account validation paradigm is real-time integration with the banks to validate the owner of a bank account. And one of our clients introduced this to us and asked us to, to build it into our supplier portal so that anytime a supplier is changing a bank account, the system reaches out in real time to a consortium of banks and confirms that the owner of the bank account is the supplier, that the bank account wasn't just open, that it's got a positive balance, that the tax IDs match so that the clients can have real confidence that the bank account is owned by the supplier and the payments are going in the right place. So that's been a really big innovation in the last year that we've seen in this space. Yeah, and if you look at on the right side of the screen here, the top B2B payment strategies for 2021, some of you may be, you know, wondering, number one, there is pay when invoices are due or payments are late, 53%. It's a little bit, you know, maybe contrary to what we showed earlier with the change in, in payment to suppliers. But as Gerard said, you need to segment your 
supplier base. And so some suppliers that you may have been paying early, you're now paying on terms or paying late. And that's a conscious decision uh, by many organizations out there. But it's just interesting as you look through these after the presentation here and kind of understand what you're doing there, cash is definitely king and organizations are figuring out how to manage the process, you know, best for their organization. And as we discussed, sometimes that means paying suppliers early and sometimes it means paying suppliers, you know, at 30 days or late. Gerard, any comments on these findings? Anything jump out at you? Yes, two things. So not sure if there's data on it, but my personal experience is there seems to have been was a, an uptick in attempts of, of fraud during COVID because supply chains were so disrupted. And, you know, we found a number of suppliers that really weren't suppliers that were trying to sell us critical goods and services. So putting that aside, you know, I, I love these types of what used to be meetings, but now WebEx meetings, because it reminds us that, you know, it's it's not just... It's not just you. So when I look at these strategies on the right-hand side of the page, it, 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 wow, this is great. It reinforces that we're doing the right things and we're having the we're we're having the right conversations. Now, on top of that, you know, as you look at those strategies, it just jumps off the page that there's no one panacea strategy that you're going to do and and it's going to fix everything, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to attack this stuff on a broad front. And, you know, each one of these strategies is going to bring something back to the organization. So that's what my takeaway was, that it's 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 certainly not a turnkey solution in any way. You're going to have to come at it from all different directions, and that's what brings results. Yep. That's a good point. Okay. Let's take a look here. E-invoicing has been around for 20 years. And when we describe e-invoicing, we're not really including in our numbers here. PDF invoices that are sent by a supplier to a buying organization, and that buying organization then needs to hit the print, hit the print key, and then takes that data and either scans it back into the system using some OCR technology, or manually enters the information. When we're talking about suppliers that submit invoices electronically, we're talking about true electronic invoices that don't require any intervention when the supplier sends them. They can be ingested and received automatically by the buying organization there. So what we saw was that 69% of suppliers are still sending invoices in a paper format. I mean, think about that for a second. In this day and age, you know, that number is ludicrously high. Now, we're hopeful that one of the positive effects of COVID and work from home is that the number of suppliers that were resistant and reluctant to change and to go to e-invoicing is going to decrease significantly. And we've heard, you know, stories about that. We've talked to different practitioners who are achieving some great levels of success when it comes to, I don't say forcing suppliers, but urging suppliers to to move to electronic format. What we also saw was that, and mind you, this study closed uh, in May of last year. So we're, we're expecting to see a big change, as I mentioned, in next year's data. What we also saw was that best in class organizations were over two times more likely to be using e-invoicing than the rest of the the respondents. And when I talk about best in class, and we'll have this on the next couple of slides here, best in class as defined by Arden is the top 20% of all respondents achieving the best results. And so we talk about best in class as those top 20% and the remaining 80% are where we come up with the other numbers from. So just so you know there. And now electronic payments are also increasing. And you know this 
is a little bit better than what we saw with electronic invoices, but still has a long way to go. And once again, as we look at this in, in next year's survey, we expect this number to go up significantly. I can't tell you the number of um, stories I've heard from both suppliers and buying organizations being unable to process paper checks and suppliers want to get paid. So if you want to get paid and you can't do a paper check, what's the option? It's being paid electronically. So we expect this number to go up significantly. We're making strides, but they're taking way too long. Paper checks are inefficient, costly, time-consuming, and as you know, Gerard mentioned, prone for fraud. People are working from home. The incidents and the levels of fraud attempts have gone off the scale. And, you know, the FBI has some statistics which showed fraud attempts in, in 2020, you know, being extremely elevated because fraudsters love nothing than a catastrophe to try to take advantage of it. And paying with paper checks is not the best way to prevent fraud in overall there. Gerard, we talked about the benefits of moving to electronic payments on, on the previous slide there. You kind of chimed into those. As more and more companies move to electronic payments, using your experience, you know, any suggestions and advice that you can provide to those companies that may not be using electronic B2B payments or may only be partially there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I would certainly caution that, you know, the, the, the risk of fraud does not go away right, with electronic payments in that if you have a, a bad process or if you're not validating the banking information, you've expedited the ability for somebody to, to defraud you. And an electronic payment is instantaneous. If it's sent to the wrong bank, to the wrong supplier, it can be really difficult to recover. But it certainly is the right way to go. But just keep up your guard with regard to those potential fraudsters out there. Move a little bit quickly here. I know we have a lot of information. We want to get time, leave time for our questions and answers there. It's always interesting to know what technology has been adopted and by whom. And, you know, what we see here on the left-hand side of the screen is that some of the technologies that have been around for many years have received a little bit higher adoption rates than some of the ones on the right-hand side of there. But document scanning, most organizations have a scanner, some way to take a piece of paper and convert it to digital data there. But when it comes to some of the newer capabilities, they're not as well adopted. So, you know, when, you, when you're looking at this, remember, this is an average of all the respondents that we see here. And you think, oh, everyone's so far ahead of us. You know, we're so far behind the eight ball if you're just starting out. You know, the reality is that's not the case. Some organizations have adopted the technology. And when they do adopt the technology, we do see a direct impact on the results and performance that they have. But if you look at the right-hand side here, some of these newer capabilities, the complete procure-to-pay solutions, the business payment networks, supplier networks, and portals, they've been around for a little while, but the adoption isn't there. So there is room for improvement. And when you look at this, you know, don't think like, oh, everyone else has it. It's really not the case. Companies have it. The ones that have it have achieved good results, but it's not across the board. So let's take a look at the cost to process a single invoice. You know, this year we came in at just under $11, $11 uh, per invoice. You know, while this is good, and certainly 10 years ago, this number was around $20 to process an invoice. So we're certainly making strides. But as you can see by the best in class here, they're able to process invoices at a cost that's 80% lower than everybody else. How do they do this? Once again, it's by applying technology here. So if you... Don't know what your cost to process an invoice is. 
I suggest, you know, that you start take a look at that because the only way you're going to know where you are and how you can improve and if the work that you're doing is actually making impact is by measuring it. So 1089 is the cost to process an invoice across the board. Now, mind you, this is some that have automated and some that haven't. So it's a blended mix there. So if you're below that, great. Congratulations. And if you're above that, you know, there's a great opportunity and ways for you to improve. It takes 10 days on average to process an invoice. So that's, you know, once again, down significantly from where we were 10 years ago, and it continues to trend in the right direction as more and more companies apply technology and we get this number down, but there's clearly room for improvement. And as you can see, best-in-class organizations are able to process invoices 74% faster. What does this mean? That invoice comes in and the best-in-class are sitting in a position after two or three days, they have an approved invoice and now are ahead of the curve and can decide what do they do with that invoice. And when that invoice becomes approved and ready for payment, it actually turns into an asset to your organization. You can then analyze, do we pay this at term? Do we go back to the supplier and offer an early payment discount? So while it's critical to to manage how long it takes to process an invoice, it's something, you know, one of the key metrics in addition with cost to process an invoice, the time to process an invoice is something that you should be looking at, you know, at a minimum, and it's a great place to start. Invoice exceptions, nearly one out of four invoices have an exception. And what's the problem with exceptions? We've talked about it before. It takes double or triple work, triple, triple, triplicate work, excuse me, to get something done. So the invoice, you know, just can't be received, matches business rules, matches a PO and route around for approval. So one in four invoices have a problem. So what, you know, when you take a look at this and combine it with $11 to process an invoice and the 10, the 10 days uh, it takes to uh, get that invoice approved, you know, the fact that nearly one in four Invoice is an exception. You know, once again, there's clearly room for improvement here. And what you look at with invoice exception rate is another key metric in addition to cost and time is once you measure it, then you can start figuring out how to tackle the problems. Why do you have exceptions occurring? You know, is it because it was a certain vendor, high volume vendor of invoices that you have that always has a problem? Then you can go back to that vendor and talk to them about correcting it. Is it a certain department within your organization that really isn't strict with its suppliers and allows things to get through and has missing information on there? Unless you start analyzing where the exceptions are coming from, they're never going to improve. And you're going to always end up having to spend time, you know, kind of like Groundhog Day, which is, was last week or so, doing the same thing over and over and over again. And we know that doesn't make sense. Dan, what do you think of these statistics? Anything to jump out at you? Yeah, well, I, exceptions, I think it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. There's not only automation, but paving the way for an invoice to, to sell through and, and not trigger an exception through clear communication and you know good purchase order processes. A lot of exceptions get caused because procurement hasn't did a purchase order, even though they've had a, a communication with the supplier about turning up the price or turning up the order volume or order quantity. Um, so there, you know, it's it's all about a three-way communication, AP procurement and the supplier to make sure that the, when an invoice arrives, it's going to sail through smoothly. Otherwise, it's back to what you said, analyze your exceptions and and try to address them in an organized way. Kind of goes back to what I said earlier. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. If you can't manage it, you can't improve it. 
improve it and yeah. you know why do you want to be dealing with the same problems time and time again month after yeah. month so invoice process straight through or touchless processing is really nirvana if you will that's when the supplier sends an invoice it's received automatically it matches against the po or business rules and then is ready and is approved and ready for payment that's what nirvana is currently only about a third of invoices across the board achieve that straight through processing rate or goal and what we saw was that best-in-class organizations do a much better job because they apply more technology they're more likely to be using e-invoicing and and have a over three times higher straight through processing rate that means that less human intervention lower cost less time to process an invoice except you can see how everything is interrelated here so the number of invoices uh, linked to a po we saw that about 56% of invoices have, were matched to a PO. Why is that important? Once again, if you have an invoice that matches to a PO, you can automatically, if you have technology there and, and, and software, you can match that PO to the invoice. And if they match successfully, you know, within the tolerance that you set up, it can go straight through for processing. It depends on your organization. Gerard's organization is more heavily uh, PO-based than some other organizations. But when you get to services organizations, you may say, you know, we don't have as many POs. You know, that's fine. There's technology exists to set up business rules to kind of mirror what that PO would do. You're expecting an invoice in from your cable supplier or your security supplier every month, and you know that it should be, you know, $100, give or take, you know, $5. You set up a business rule for that. If the invoice comes in and meets the criteria for that tolerance, it can be approved and then sent off for approval and ready for payment. So just because you don't have a PO, don't think that you can't achieve straight through processing. You most certainly can. There's no doubt the data can contribute to value. As we see in this chart here, 97% of best-in-class organizations view data and intelligence as important or critical attribute to their business. You know, and what do the best-in-class know that the rest of us don't know? They just realize that AP is sitting on a gold mine of information that's been untapped largely for years, and they're accessing it more so. So they're taking AP from a, a a more tactical role where they're just processing paper and getting invoices approved, and I'm simplifying that, yes, I know that, to one that's being more strategic, which is those things are happening automatically. They're eliminating the tactical task, and now they're taking the data and saying, okay, how do we take this data and, and extract information and knowledge we can share with the rest of the organization with, with that? And Gerard, talk to me a little bit. I know you've done this in your career. We talked about it before. You know, what are some of the examples that you have of leveraging data that AP has for benefit of the organization? It's probably it's my lifeblood. You know, I can tell you what we should be paying for something. I can tell you what the deal says we should be paying, but AP tells us exactly what we did pay. And that drive those data analytics drive my project agenda going into next year and what I need to attack. And also what I attacked last year, is it sticking? Is it am I getting the benefits of it? Or did I, you know, again negotiate for for price A and I'm paying 2x on A. So uh that the 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 data that AP provides literally sets the roadmap for our success. Got it. And Gerard you guys um, are very progressive. Do you have any data scientists that are actually looking at AP data or within the AP organization? We do. And not only do we have folks data mining that information, it, it through uh, tools like Power BI, the metrics are available at the site level. And again, you saw that we have over 90 sites. So the AP data down to 
who the suppliers are, on-time payment at individual payment terms, DPO and DSO on the same chart are all available at people's fingertips. So you can know exactly how you're doing versus the goal, which is which is a paradigm shifting event. And like you said, if you can't measure it, you can't report it, you can't fix it. Great. I want to leave some uh, time for the questions here. So go through the next couple slides quickly here. We asked AP you know, what skills they thought were necessary for the future. So, you know, take a look at these after the presentation. As you're building your organization, as you're training your organization, this is what AP thinks it needs to be successful. More customer service, more collaboration, better information on fraud and compliance, and better knowledge, as Gerard pointed out, to the full P2P process is critical. Gig workers, those of you who don't know what gig workers are or temporary workers, we're seeing many more being used by organizations. So you need to be prepared for them. And how does AP manage them? If you're not dealing with them, you may be. So just something to be aware of that that's coming down. It's a change that's that we're seeing across the board here. And you can see some of the stats on here. So something to be aware of and, and be prepared and be ahead of the curve. You don't want to be you know, caught unaware. You know, and finally here, before we get to the, Q, the Q&A section, you know, what does the future of accounts payable look like? We asked the survey respondents to kind of put on their virtual reality glasses, look into the crystal ball and, and see what was needed for the future to be successful here. And, you know, I think I think Gerard, you know, may have shed a tear when he saw the number one answer was improved collaboration with key stakeholders across the organization, because we know he preaches that collaboration uh, is critical to the organization. So it's great to see that, you know, AP realizes that they're not on an island by themselves. They're actually part of a larger uh, organization that's here. And then on the right hand side, how are they going to get there with smarter systems that drive more intelligence? that, as Gerard mentioned, able to provide them with information, DPO, DSO, which is day pay, days payable outstanding or days sales outstanding, better information to run their organization. So with that, I'm going to bring on Helen, uh, who's going to ask us some questions that have come in from you. And please, if you haven't asked a question, please do so now. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Danny and Gerard, for a, a wonderful presentation. So the first question has to uh, do with early payment discounts and optimizing those. This particular company already does a lot of work in terms of factoring program. But the question is, what would be your advice to plot a strategy that makes sense as a business case? How does data mining work to help here? So this would be early payment discounts for suppliers that are not in the factoring program. Danny and Gerard? I guess I'll jump in with one point, and that is, you know, suppliers aren't a monolith, they're not all the same. And even an individual supplier's need for early payment can vary based on, on business conditions. So we see a lot of companies, even some of the biggest companies in the world that you would never expect to take early payments because they have rich working capital, they sometimes do take early payments around fiscal year end or quarter end to try and dress up their uh, balance sheets. Mm -hmm. And so... So a solution like factoring may not be appropriate for them. So so what we have found is that you need a, a mix of early payment opportunities for people, and they need to be very intelligently marketed based on the business conditions and type of supplier that you might be dealing with. Private companies and public companies have different needs and different objectives around working capital as well. 
if I could just add to that and say that the, the options need to be also different tools, right? So ghost cards, supply chain financing, et cetera. It, it, it can't be one size fits all, but look, we're, we're a big company and we take the uh, early payment discounts as well. Yeah, negotiated discounts, dynamic discounts, right. supplier-initiated discounts, all of those, as well as third-party funding. In case your working capital gets a little bit tight or your working capital conditions change, you need to either fund yourself or have a third-party fund those early payments so that the suppliers aren't totally dependent on your working capital situation. Thank you for that. Uh, another question that came in is about the bank account validation capability. And the question is, is that available internationally? So, Danny, I believe that would be a question for you. Yeah. So the level of bank account validation varies by country. Um, in the U.S., India, and I believe it's Switzerland, Sweden, we have validation all the way down to the bank account owner level. In other countries of the world, we can validate that the bank account is valid, but we may not be able to tie it to the owner of the bank account. But we, we layer on validations that, that help provide confidence in that bank account, like tax ID validations, OFAC checking. And if someone's using our portal, we also do multi-factor authentication. And you can demand other things like the person who's changing the bank account has to know the previous bank account. Things like that can provide security around the bank account. Great. Question about metrics. What specific metrics do you find most useful? So a couple examples that this uh, requester had were weighted average DPO, late versus on time versus early pay, and maybe getting a perspective from Gerard on this would be interesting on, you know, best metrics. Gee whiz. Yes, you need to pick out which is my favorite child. They're all exceptionally important. I love that you, when you when you could put DSO and DPO on the same page and you can look at, you know, how are we collecting our money and how are we paying out our money? It, it just screams volumes. In addition, they said, you know, payment on time. You look at the payment on time for a invoice that's due in 10 days versus one that's due in 60 days or 75. You're going to see a stark difference in your payment on time. That educates people on why we don't pay people in 10 days because it's just too hard to do. And it's really not worth it unless we get a discount. So the data changes the hearts and minds, uh, you know, one, one at a time. And I would add to that, the metrics, you know, or, or the, the child that you love most, as Gerard mentioned, kind of changes somewhat depending upon your level of sophistication and where you are in the process. You know, when you're starting out, there's probably five or six or seven key metrics that you want to measure. And then as you get those, uh, a handle on those, then you want to start adding more in to the mix that are there. The level of sophistication is critical there. Days to approve an invoice, the cost to improve an invoice, the number of exceptions, things along those lines are some basic, you know, table stakes, if you will. So if you're just starting out, you're listening on this call and you haven't done anything, those are the ones that I would start with, with the ultimate goal of getting to where Gerard said, you know, DSO and DPO, discounts taken, all those different things. So, you know, another key metric is number of invoices in paper versus electronic format. I know talking to Gerard, you know, they've already elect, 
uh, I'll say electronified or digitized, you know, most of their invoices received some suppliers. So that's it's something that they don't watch as closely because they've already kind of achieved the goal that's there. They just need to, you know, be concerned when they bring on a new supplier. But the level or the different type of metrics will change as uh, you get more mature and more sophisticated. Great. And one we'll end with, because we've just got a couple of minutes, actually a couple of questions that are related. Were the statistics you presented, Bob, based solely on 2020? And since it was such a unique year, wouldn't it be better to have a cross-section? And then a related question is, how do you and Ardent think the changes brought about by the last year will change AP permanently? Well, yes. The data we presented, we've done the survey for 15 years prior to this year. So we have a good indication where things have been as compared to this past year. And as I mentioned numerous times, very interested to see the results from the next survey that we do and how how things have changed when it comes to adoption of technology, when it comes to number of paper invoices, paper checks, things along those lines. So, you know, you know, anxiously awaiting that survey to go out so we can get the data back so we can see the changes that we've made. You know, my gut, and I'd say it's more than, you know, just a kind of a my hunch, but what I think has happened, and I've talked to many solution providers and practitioners over the past year, we do this on a regular basis, is the solution providers like Apex that I've spoken to, all of them, without exception, had record years. And that's because they offered a service that was desperately needed when work from home uh, you know, took over and organizations realized this. So what I think we're going to see is that COVID was the great automator, if you will. It helped organizations that could never successfully get a project approved, get them approved. It had more organizations who were fine doing things and never looked for an automation solution to do things differently. So I'm thinking that next year's results will see greater levels of automation across the board. The willingness of suppliers to submit invoices electronically will go up dramatically. And the number of B2B payments that we see being uh, sent electronically or digitally will also be increased significantly. So definitely take a look at this year's results and then be on the lookout for our reports next year. And our data is always available to practitioners at no charge. So, you know, feel free to reach out to me or to our partners to look at our site and through Apex who has that data, you know, that we're talking about today, you know, to, to take a look at that and, and you know, stay tuned. But I, I do think there's some good changes. And I think that COVID was a bad situation, obviously, that had a positive effect on many companies' AP departments and procurement departments. So it sounds like look for the silver lining, right, Bob? <laughs> Without a doubt. There's a silver lining here. we got to be yeah. positive always. Helen, if if I could just add two real quick statements. One is in 2020, companies that were automated thrived and those processes that were manual struggled. And then secondly, in the history of the world, nobody unautomated a process, right? So that talks about the the future uh, impact of all of the work that's been done in the last year around automation. Great. Well, thank you all for the Q&A session. We thank you all for joining. We hope to see you at a future webinar and everybody stay safe and uh, have a good rest of the week.